Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with a unique episode today. I am hosting Dan Peterson, who currently serves as Vice President for Development at the University of Washington and just wrapped up uh, service as the President at the University of Washington Foundation. And Dan is about 10 days from uh, wrapping up at the University of Washington. And so, uh, I just wanted to welcome Dan here and uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brent. Great to be with you, great to see you. As a side hustle, Dan shared that he is a grandfather to Addison who had a fourth birthday today. And so I just wanted to make sure that Addison got that shout out as well. Thank you, appreciate that. Dan, um, I have this really poignant memory, um, you know, in a, the before times before the pandemic when we were logging travel, you know, at a level that at least I haven't seen return just yet. Uh, I was at a conference and I, I believe it was in Seattle and I can't remember which one it was. And I was trying to figure it out through my uh, emails and, and I couldn't, but I have this poignant memory of you listening to a presentation that I gave and, and sitting in like the front row and being very engaged. And I don't know what the presentation was about, but I just, I, I don't have that many like poignant memories of the first time that I can really remember seeing somebody out there in the circuit, but I have that with you. So it's great to kind of come full circle and reconnect in this environment. Um, and as I've been asking, you know, many of my guests on the Raise podcast uh, to just reflect on your own higher education journey, you know, think back to Dan, junior year of high school, who was that guy and what led him to Washington State University? Yeah, I mean, the easy answer, what led me to Washington State, it was 300 miles away from my parents. So particularly, I didn't have to worry about my father showing up on my doorstep uh, on a Friday night, I could go have a, a real college experience. And, um, you know, back in the day, you know, in the late 1970s, you know, not many parents took kids to college tours around the country. And, you know, I'm, I'm a state of Washington kid, so I applied at UW, I applied at WSU, um, was accepted to both and really made the decision to go to Pullman um, just to have a little separation and to have a, a, a true college experience. Back then, the UW did not offer a lot of on-campus residential student living. Um, I mean, it was, it was more of a commuter campus back then. It's uh, much different today. Uh, so WSU was you know, across the mountains and in the farthest corner of the state. And uh, it just you know, felt like a good thing to do. Just to set a little bit of context for folks, three of the top 10 songs that year were by the Bee Gees. So that was a pretty big, uh, pretty big moment for the Bee Gees, right? <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're telling me Night Fever, Staying Alive and How Deep Is Your Love. So, you know. I, was, I think I was a little more into the Boston scene uh, then. So fair enough, fair enough. Boston, little Kansas uh, for your Midwest background, uh, REO Speedwagon. There we go. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, getting uh, 300 miles from home, uh, what was the experience at, at Washington State? Did you kind of hit the ground running right away? Uh, was it a, you know, tough adjustment? I mean, what was the, you know, did you know that you loved higher education when you were experiencing it? Well, um, I actually stayed out of school a year and I worked um, in the retail grocery business uh, and it was a great experience. I, did, I, I think 
I wasn't ready to go to college. Uh, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So working hard for a year um, was great. Uh, it, it, I saw in that experience um, people that were 20, 30 year veterans of that uh, industry. And I knew what they made because we, they, the company I worked for was very transparent in posting your weekly salary. So I knew what the store manager was making. And I just felt like, I, you know, I could have been, I could have done that, but I was materialistic enough to realize uh, that isn't going to cut it. Um, and that helped me when I went back to college, I was committed then to get there, take advantage of it. Um, and, uh, and then I fell back into some things I did in high school where I was really involved in student government. And I became involved in student government at WSU, um, served on the student Senate. Uh, uh, my senior year was the uh, uh, associated student vice president. Um, and that's what led me to advancement because um, while I was an AS, uh, AS uh, WSU officer, Connie Kravis would invite officers of the student body to the WSU Foundation meetings. Connie was then the president of WSU Foundation. And so I got some exposure to development that way. And then I had the good fortune to serve on the search committee that year that hired the WSU's first, what we would call today, vice president for advancement. So WSU decided in 1981 to build an integrated advancement program. And they hired a gentleman by the name of Stanton Schmid, um, who uh, was actually the uh, would be a, a great person for you to have on your 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 race uh, cast at some point, uh, Brent. But um, Stan was the deputy advancement leader at the University of Washington. So this this two degree Husky who had worked 15 years at his alma mater was hired by WSU to come across the state and build an advancement team, um, integrated advancement team at Washington State University, served on the search committee, um, had a beer with him on his first uh, day uh, in the office. And he just said, hey, let's stay in touch. Let's stay connected. And a year later, I called him to do a summer internship. And here we are almost 40 years later. Well, I got to give a shout out to my colleague, Kevin Massimino, who was a proud Coug and also served as ASWSU vice president. So I don't know if you've made that connection, but that's in fact, and I will encourage Kevin to uh, at yeah. least reach out and say hello. Um, I like that. This, this uh, goes live. And um, I, I do just want to touch on one kind of unique twist in your resume relative to many guests is you did um, attend law school which in a certain regard, as I learn more and more about advancement and especially complicated gifts and st structuring and so forth, it, it's almost surprising that more folks don't um, consider that or at least some sort of supplemental legal education. But uh, I've also heard from a lot of folks that, you know, go to law school if you want to be a lawyer. So did you want to be a lawyer? Well, I graduated from WSU with a history degree, and I thought I wanted to do student, you know, I thought I wanted to do high school teaching, and I, I realized that that wasn't it. So, you know, with a history degree, and I had had an interest in law, so I thought, you know, I'll, I'll go give that a shot, thinking, yes, I wanted to be an attorney. By the end of the first year, I did not want to be an attorney. I knew that. And that's really what led me to call Stan for the internship. 
Um, one of our law professors really gave us a gift when he told the group, um, hey, you're all stressed out. It's the end of the first year. Go do anything but law this year. Anything that you can do this summer. Be a lifeguard at the state park, he said. Never forget it. Be a lifeguard at the state park? Yeah, so that, that I mean, a real gift. And, and uh, uh, because he said that next summer, after your second year, you've got to do something law-related to get yourself ready to get, you know, to do the job hunt. So I knew I had to be in Eastern Washington a good chunk of that summer. And so I it just, I called Stan. I said, hey, would like to do it. Uh, you know, he said, I've got an internship for you. Um, I did that full time. And at the end of the summer, he said, you can do this work. You would be good in this. I will hire you, but you have to finish law school. And I'm like, what? I mean, I would, take, I would have taken a job right then. But Stan also had his law degree and he saw what that law degree, to your point, Brent, your setup here, he saw what that law degree meant um, for his own career growth and development. Um, so I went back to law school, but I went back knowing I was going to go into advancement and it made law school much more enjoyable because I focused on the things that I wanted to, to, to take advantage of. Um, so I took a lot of tax. I took a lot of estate planning, wills and trusts. I mean, you can see from my resume, I've spent a lot of time in the plan giving area, um, so law school helped immensely there. Um, but I think also the uh, advocacy skills that you build in law school, both oral and, and, and written advo advocacy was helpful. And, and then just the whole problem solving, how you look at a set of facts, you identify the issue, you, you analyze possible solutions um, and, and, and um, you know, build plans going forward. So, yeah. I, so you kind of, you know, you had that uh, clarity in law school, which I'm sure in a certain regard probably reduced the pressure and allowed you to, again, explore and focus more on what did you want to learn as opposed to, you know, how do I scratch and claw my way to the most white shoe firm, uh, you know, of my classmates, which, which is just a part of that um, competitive dynamic. But then you went and did something that very, very few people have ever done, which is spend 20 years working on behalf of your alma mater yeah. uh, continuously in an advancement leadership role. And in a sector where, you know, oftentimes folks have to move their lives and their families to advance their career, which you've done as well. Uh, I just have to ask what kept you in that um at Washington State for uh, an, an almost unparalleled number of years? Well, I think one of the benefits of large public institutions and, and the advancement programs that they have is that the advancement program is also fairly large and it allows you to almost port from job to job or maybe even career to career inside of that institution without having to necessarily move. Um, yes, I was at WSU for 20 years, but um, I had, I mean, I had, you know, almost four fundamentally different roles, you know, I think of it almost as career stops. Um, about every four or five years, I was, I was 
kind of lifted and moved into something, you know, pretty different. Um, so I, it just, I never felt like I needed to go look at other institutions until I reached a point where philosophically, the leader of the WSU Foundation and I, the then leader, just looked at each other and said, we don't see eye to eye on how to do this work. That's fine. He's, he's, he's the leader that, you know, the university leadership has tapped him. And so I said to him, you know, uh, give me six months and, you know, I'll be, uh, you know, I'll be out of here. And um, that's what led me to, to, to actively look. I was in about four or five searches at one time and uh, ultimately led me to um, the University of Washington School of Medicine advancement team. And then from there, you know, Oregon State, Illinois, and then back to Washington. Can I just ask, uh, during those 21 years, I mean, it had to be, uh, you know, working on behalf of your alma mater, selling a mission that you had personally benefited from. That's pretty special. Any favorite memories, favorite donor experiences or gifts that were closed that uh, you'd be open to sharing? Well, I think the, um, can I do three? You bet you can. Okay. Uh, one would be the, the volunteer who was on my first search committee, Wayne Walther, uh, first search committee when I was hired as a young athletic fundraiser, and I was going to go up to Spokane and raise money for Cougar Athletics up there. You know, Wayne, the education, the gift that Wayne gave me was understanding, um, you'll appreciate this as a marketing professional, Brent. He said, understand that there are three different sectors of Cougs in Spokane that you're going to have to connect with. There's the old guard with all the money, the middle guard, emerging professionals, and then what he called the young bucks. And that and he he told me that as we were driving from Pullman to Spokane um, after we had completed the interview process and I had the job and all of that. But I'll never forget that. I mean, it was that, you know, a volunteer pulling me aside and and essentially telling me how to succeed in that marketplace, you know, uh, was really helpful. The second would be um, a volunteer, Doug Grimm who was the longtime chair of our Portland plan giving advisory board and where we brought together a group of allied professionals and we'd come in once a month with a, one of the plan gifts that we were working on that was particularly tricky or complicated. And Doug was just such a great convener. He had such great presence and respect in the Portland community. He attracted top quality allied professionals to be part of this. Um, and he also, he was one of these people that was like being in law school in the Socratic method where the, the questions that he asked. And so what it made you do was want to always bring your A game. You never wanted to come to that plan giving advisory board meeting and think you could just show up and wing it with Doug and that group. So I, I really appreciated that level of professionalism that he inspired. Um, and then from a donor standpoint, probably at WSU has to be Phil and June Lighty. Um, when I was there, uh, they were by far, by a magnitude of tenfold, the largest donors to student scholarships and student programs 
at WSU. Phil was a Bay Area kid who came to WSU to, to uh, originally study veterinary medicine. Um, uh, he graduated in 1941 in business. He almost didn't graduate because he told his fraternity advisor he was going to be $50 short. He did not have $50 to cover his last semester's tuition. Um, he was a houseboy in a sorority, so he had his room and board kind of covered. Uh, and the, the fraternity advisor, a guy named Joe Carraher, who, who then was the alumni magazine editor, right? All, all roads lead to advancement. Joe said, Phil, I'll loan you the 50 bucks. Come, to, come back, make sure you finish. You can pay me back some at some point in time. More importantly, you could probably just pay it forward to somebody else. Joe told Phil that. And so Phil never forgot that, uh, was a founding partner of Dean Witter, did really well in the financial services uh, industry in the Bay Area, and never forgot his alma mater, never forgot his student experience. Um, uh, so, you know, worked with him on, on uh, a lot of gifts, uh, uh, on big complicated gifts. Um, uh, but you never, when you went and saw Phil and June in Burlingame, you never got to a conversation about giving until you went through the four years of WSU scrapbooks that Phil had from his student days at WSU. I love that. What a poignant memory. And um, do you think that they would have been equally philanthropic if it weren't for that taste of philanthropy that Joe offered them? Um, that's a great question. Uh, they were, they were, I think they would have certainly been involved on the alumni side because Phil was Phil was sort of a big man on campus as a student, and you could tell from the scrapbooks was involved in a lot of things. So I think there was a lot of Cougar pride. So I think in our vernacular today, Brent, they would have been engaged alumni and probably over time would have been inspired to think about philanthropy. Somebody like Connie Kravis would have would have glommed onto them pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, I think they would have got there, but it may have been, a, it may, their journey might've been a little different. So it really was that poignant of a memory for him oh. and that much of a spark for yeah. his life. And yeah. it just makes you wonder how might we foster that level of um, appreciation and support within the existing student population is tough, right? Because, you know, nobody in your seat, uh, you know, and your peers who've been guests on this podcast, uh, you know, are really being hired to set the foundation for 50 years from now. Your, your, your job is to raise the money today to solve problems and make an impact today. But it's amazing when you hear so many examples where that one little pay it forward moment um, just planted a seed of gratitude that that grows, and uh, it it does make me wonder how to how to balance really stewarding that top 
one or 2% of the giving pyramid while not forgetting that those seeds are being planted today? I, I think it's how you define success, Brent. And I think if we define success myopically in terms of uh, dollars in the door today, then I think we'll have done our institution a huge disservice. And I think I'm very worried about our profession overweighting its focus on dollars in the door today, not thinking about the next 20 or 30 years, because I think demographically, socially, the students of the past 10 years, the students of the next 30 years, they're gonna look, they're gonna look and experience college a lot differently than Phil did. Um, and we have to pay attention to that. We have to be mindful of that. We have to play the long game. Now, you started at Washington State uh, a few minutes before another guest on this podcast, Mike Goodwin. I was there. I was a bit before Mike, but we were colleagues. And Mike, I want to give Mike a shout out and, cre- and because Mike was our first full-time plan giving officer, director at WSU. Mike was the person who seeded the largest gifts that Phil and June Lighty made. Very cool. And a reminder of how tight-knit this sector is and your paths uh, did cross again, which we'll speak to. But I have to ask as you, uh, and I appreciate your candor just around why you left Washington State and without getting into all of those details, that couldn't have been all that easy. And I have to ask what it was like going over to UW and frankly, um, I don't know, starting, you know, taking that step as a professional fundraiser where it's, it's not just about your alma mater or kind of growing up at the institution, but it's about the business of philanthropy and selling somebody else's mission, even though you maybe didn't know the fight song or didn't have, uh, you know, all of the institutional knowledge that you uh, undoubtedly had uh, you know, garnered over the years at Washington State. Uh, tell me about that transition to professional fundraiser, if you will. Yeah. Um, well, first, I think it was um, when you're forced to leave the nest, you leave the nest. So the fact that I was feeling that pressure um, meant that I didn't have the luxury of trying to figure out a way to hang on. You know, the, this gentleman and I had reached a, we had reached an agreement. Um, so uh, I knew I had, so I was, you know, I knew I had to do something. I think actually when I was, the different roles I was looking at, the, the stepping to the University of Washington School of Medicine and the medicine advancement team was actually probably a good first step out of the nest for me because it didn't it re, it didn't require me to embrace a whole institution i could i could make maybe a half step towards embracing a significant let's be clear significant part of the university of washington enterprises uw medicine um, but uw medicine is is about you know patient care and it's about uh, disease prevention and disease cure it's, it's not about hail alma mater. Um, it's a, so it, it helped me. Um, and I think it, it helped me make that transition. And then, you know, a couple of years later when Mike Goodwin called about the Oregon state opportunity, 
once I had made that first step, the second and the third step became uh, a bit easier to, to, to consider. And so tell me about getting that call. Was it a difficult decision or uh, was it a no brainer to get that band back together? Uh, it was a no brainer. Um, I learned in the process of working with some great colleagues at medicine um, who I'm going to uh, get together with as I head into retirement and celebrate our time together. I learned that I did not have a passion for academic medicine. I have a passion for eight, helping 18 to 22 year olds get a good start in life. I have a, I have a belief now, strong belief that American public higher education has been one of the great um, social equalizing forces in our country. Um, not perfectly because it's excluded a lot of participants, uh, a lot of potential participants. Hopefully we will change that over time moving forward. Um, uh, but the ability to go to Oregon State that had a vibe like WSU, uh, Beavers are every bit as fanatical about their institution as Cougars are. Um, uh, and the ability to work with a quality leader like uh, Mike Goodwin and, and be part of what Mike was doing in rebuilding the um, OSU Foundation, um, that was attractive. Uh, that, that was really attractive. And uh, Mike called me 20 minutes before my wife and I were to meet a realtor um, in Seattle to go pick the house that we were going to, to buy. So, you know, if Mike would have called me, you know, a couple of hours later, I don't know, might have, some things might've turned out differently, but. So right before the roots were planted, basically. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, when you reflect on the time in Oregon State, I mean, we've had such a longstanding relationship there. I've got Oregon State stories. You know, I was talking to a fundraiser at a dinner one time and we were actually just going around the table saying, hey, tell me kind of your, I don't know, craziest or most memorable sort of donor story, uh, you know, fundraising trip. And uh, she specifically had worked with the veterinarian school and she was talking about how little people appreciate how much philanthropy gets done in barns. And uh, that one time she was helping somebody, uh, she was meeting a prospective donor uh, and she ended up having to jump in and help deliver uh, a calf, a baby cow. And so uh, curious if you had any of those sorts of um, kind of edge case uh, fundraising trips that you recall or that you've heard of from peers. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have, I don't, I don't, I don't have the delivering the, the baby cow uh, that I can, I can almost imagine who that was. Uh, um, I, I think the, the, uh, I think the ones that I remember were, uh, I remember several donors from the College of Agriculture. So going out on the road with Todd Bastian um, and going down to Southern Oregon um, to, to meet with um, uh, fruit growers down there that were interested in supporting the College of Agriculture there at Oregon State or over to Eastern Washington. I, I Two that come to mind that are special, one would be, um, a trip to Walla Walla to the wine country um, and to meet with uh, OSU alum Norm McKibbins, who was uh, he was by profession, was a civil engineer. 
um, was part of the Kiwit group, um, did very well, and has started three wineries, last I knew, three wineries in Walla Walla. But he's he's a proud engineer in the way that he makes wine. And so getting the tour of the Pepper Bridge Winery from Norm, having him explain how he makes wine with a totally gravity fed system. That was pretty, that was, I like red wine. That was pretty, uh, that was pretty fun. And then I think over to Tillamook on the coast of Oregon, the Tillamook Cheese Company and meeting with one of the founding uh, co-op members of that law. I mean, that, that great company, uh, um, Bud Ginger uh, was, was an outstanding uh, Beaver alumnus. He and his wife, very generous, very committed to helping students from that uh, region um, get a great Oregon State experience. Um, Bud went to Oregon State for 4-H camp, as I recall, as like a junior high student or an early high school student. And that kind of cemented his relationship. And so, you know, working with Folks, folks like that um, in ways to, to help support their alma mater. Uh, and again, to help young people get that start in life, pretty rewarding. You give me flashbacks because we did our family RV trip during the pandemic, 10 months on the road, 12,000 miles, 34 states with the stop in Walla Walla, got a little taste of wine country. We'd not experienced that before. Nice stop in Yakima, which I didn't totally appreciate. Uh -huh. And then, um, and then we did uh, cruise through Tillamook as well. And so, uh, yeah, expanded the horizons for yeah. sure. Um, I have to ask, after that much time um, in the Pacific Northwest, I wouldn't have necessarily guessed that the move to the Midwest to the University of Illinois um, would be in the cards. And I'm just curious, again, was that an easy decision, hard decision, lessons learned? Well, um, I said no to them twice. I said no to the University of Illinois twice, and then the chancellor called. And the chancellor at the University of Illinois is a woman named Phyllis Wise, who had been at the University of Washington when I was there. So I knew of her, I did not know her well, she was the provost. Um, but uh, Connie Kravis had called me and said, you know, Dan, she needs a top advancement officer. You can do this job and you will love her. Um, and along the way, I've sort of learned, Brent, that um, uh, much as Jerry Panis's book said, you know, people make big gifts because they believe in mission and they believe in leadership. I think, I think as you start to look at top level positions and advancement, you should be looking at that same criteria. Um, belief in mission, belief in leadership, uh, Again, the, I knew about the University of Illinois through the whole Big Ten kind of uh, uh, um, ecosystem. Um, so, I, you know, the mission was appealing. I knew that there had been some instability within the advancement program at the university. Um, so I, 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 I originally said no. Um, but then I had a four-hour telephone call with Chancellor Wise who remains a dear friend today. And uh, I hung up the phone and I looked at my wife and I said, I think we gotta go take a look at this one, honey. So um, that's, you know, that's what brought us to Illinois. And um, I enjoyed every minute of it. I, the, the institution was every bit as vibrant 
as impactful um, as I uh, uh, as I expected it to be. Um, the team there was, you know, deeply committed to all things Illinois, um, and the chancellor had a, an incredible vision for how she wanted to move the institution forward, including the creation of the first engineering-based college of medicine, um, which was a lot of fun to work with her on. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it, it was a, a great experience and um, I loved Big Ten athletics and my son and I went to Indianapolis this past, uh, um, past March for the Big Ten basketball tournament. So there's a part of, there's a part of that that's gonna gonna stick with me, and I, you know, bought my Illinois gear and, you know, rooted for the Illini that they lost in the second day. Can uh, can you make any broad generalization? I mean, similar kind of positioning in that these are, you know, name brand, top tier public education institutions. So sort of the role that the University of Illinois plays in the Midwest is very similar to the role that. Washington or Washington State might play in the Pacific Northwest. Is fundraising the same or is it different in the Midwest versus the Pacific Northwest? Um, I think it was largely the same, particularly thinking about it through the alumni lens. I don't think I would say that there were discernible differences. As I've come back to the University of Washington, one of the things that I've realized is, and I think this would be the case if, if the University of Illinois were located in Chicago, okay? If, if actually the flagship institution was in Chicago, like Seattle or UW is in Seattle, I think the biggest difference, Brent, is um, this year, and it's been pretty consistent during my tenure here, 80% of the donors to the University of Washington are non-alumni. Um, uh, I don't believe, I, I, I believe that ratio would be flipped at the University of Illinois. Um, and it, but and again, you think I, that's just the intersection of UW, uh, that's just the intersection of UW and like the economy of Seattle. Exactly. The economy of Seattle, these, um, these hometown strangers that, that, you know, come, they, they come to Seattle for. Um, work or business opportunities, they stay. And um, as Connie was fond of always saying, they they embrace, they give where they live um, sort of philosophy. Um, so uh, I think University of Illinois, because of its, uh, uh, because of the strength of, of many of its programs, probably most notably the College of Engineering, um, it will attract the national and international constituency. Um, but I think it's different when you're not sitting in a, you know, a 5 million plus uh, population center. And so you did make it to that population center, uh, had the opportunity to play a big role in the Be Boundless campaign, raising over $6 billion. And for the six year trailing period, ending fiscal 22, $679 million a year, roughly, being raised with over 150,000 donors per year. Uh, again, a scale that few people have had the opportunity to experience. 
Uh, just tell me about that and um, reflections on that last uh, last uh, stop before, as you said, retirement. I didn't want to. I didn't know if I could share that news here. I didn't know how public it was, but yeah, you said, very public. "Oh yeah, yeah." We have our we we we've done the recruitment for my successor, uh, Tamara Jossarand, has started July first, so we've been transitioning here um, the last month and a half or so, and uh, university is going to be in good hands with her leadership. Um, yeah, I think the, uh, I think reflecting Brent, um, it's, this is a team sport. Um, and this is all about team. Um, the, the, we raise that kind of money through the University of Washington because with intentionality, we've built a high performing constituency based um, major gift centered uh, fundraising enterprise uh, supported by a terrific group of uh, central de uh, development programs capably led by my uh, partner and colleague, Lee Heck. Um, and, um, and those unit chief advancement officers and their teams and, and Lee central teams, they are, they are highly collaborative. They do a great job. Um, you know, really the credit, uh, I, I'm probably a bit of a conductor leader, if you will, uh, uh, but the credit is really to them. I mean, they, they are, you know, uh, I'm, I'm just grateful to have had the opportunity to be alongside of those that are in the seat today and those that, um, you know, uh, folks like uh, Edgar, Edgar Gonzalez and Tracy Ostrom and others who have, have moved on from the University of Washington, but, you know, where our past touched, um, just so grateful to have had the chance to partner with them and work alongside of them. They're terrific teams. Um, uh, and the... And in this sort of full integrated advancement model where we focus with intentionality, and I tell people a lot, I, I cite the ever true funnel a lot uh, about focusing our work on, um, on, on the marketing enterprise, the you know, building awareness, building engagement at scale through that marketing enterprise. Um, leading to uh, uh, more significant engagement, which then leads to uh, philanthropy and other forms of private support. So, um, I, you know, it's funny, the, the, I started my career in, working with a guy who was building an integrated advancement program, right, at Washington State, and I'm finishing my career in what I would what I would argue is one of the best integrated advancement programs in the country. So I I feel pretty fortunate. Yeah, I I, I love the uh, reference to the funnel, and you know I think the the trick is the handoff from stage to stage, um, recognizing that engagement and content is going to be in a bit of a silo, no matter how many times we do presentations about breaking down silos and recognizing that prospect development is going to be in their own world and the front line is going to be out on the front lines. And especially at the scale you're operating, I think the trick is how do you, how do you create consistency and streamline that handoff um, such that it's not uh, just a, a pretty slide, you know? No, I think that's true. Um, 
you know, and maybe and maybe adding a layer to what you just described, the the rise of digital giving officers or some, you know, however they're, I mean, some people I've, I've heard them called discovery officers, but I even think the discovery officer tends to have more of an out on the road kind of description to it. I believe we've learned during COVID that we can engage effectively with uh, prospective donors in a remote environment like this. And the, the digital gift officer, um, just, to me, that's, I mean, if I were going to be in this another 15 years and I was thinking about waiting investments, that's, I mean, building the funnel, and you probably don't appreciate me calling it a funnel, but building that kind of framework and then building out the fundraising infrastructure a bit differently, um, probably with more reliance on the digital gift officer. Um, I think uh, I, I see that as part of the future. Yeah, look, it's not only that we've learned, it's that the donors have learned and adjusted, right? And this is applying, I mean, we're not, we're not special snowflakes in advancement. It's changing the way that real estate deals are done. It's changing the way that wealth management is done. It's changing the way that luxury sales are done. You can buy a Tesla with Apple Pay on your iPhone right now. I mean, the world has changed a lot. But my, my second daughter bought her home in Ballard without ever walking through it. And she's not that, that's not that unique. It is not that atypical anymore, right? And yeah. so why wouldn't we uh, be comfortable making philanthropic decisions in a remote first context? And honestly, I think donors are way ahead of us. Like right. we're, you know, think of ourselves as donors. We are ahead of the industry. And I, you know, there are times when I feel like we're, um, you know, we're making good strides in advocating for the DXO concept or the DGO concept. And then there are times when I, I sit here and I think, how are we even talking about this? It's 2022 what's the alternative, you know, getting on a plane and doing less than a hundred visits a year for the cost of a frontline person plus travel and entertainment. I mean, how, well, how and, are dating this? And to your point, more importantly, what is our consumer, if you will? So it's, it's following consumer behavior. What are they signaling to us that they want? I think they, they want our content. They want the ability to engage with us and they want to engage with us um, on their timeline and in ways that matter to them. Um, so, yeah, I, I just, yeah. About a month ago, Dan, you wrote a super thoughtful post on LinkedIn and I would encourage everybody listening, follow Dan, connect with Dan, mention that you heard him on the podcast um, in your in your note. Uh, because he's really been thoughtful. I mean, there look, there's still a lot of advancement leaders that are not public on LinkedIn, right? That aren't sharing a window into the universities they work with. I think that's a missed opportunity, but you've done that. You've embraced it. Um, and you really wrote a, a, a very thoughtful post that you, uh, in which you basically summarize what you call the four predictors of fundraising success, which was kind of a, a quick compilation of, um, you know, a variety of perspectives and, uh, you know, lessons learned over the years. And I thought it would make sense to share them with our audience today. Um, and I'll just take you through, I mean, unless you, unless you've got them right there in front of you, um, uh, or, or if you'd want to just be able to rattle them off, otherwise I can reference your post, but you know, what are the four predictors of fundraising success and 
The first was a compelling case for support. Yeah, a compelling case for support that reflects the institution's brand, its mission, and that advances the strategic priorities of the institution. I think that and is really important. Um, I'm a proponent of moving away from uh, donor-centric fundraising and moving to what I call a more values-aligned fundraising model. And so making sure that our case for support reflects the strategic direction and priorities of the institution. So we're we're introducing those early and often um, with prospective funders. Uh, it's, It's great to have a case, but if you aren't thinking about how that case is communicated, articulated, moved out, and I'm not a marketing professional, Brent, so there's a lot of other people that know this work far better than I do. Um, but what I do feel strongly about is that, that the case has to be communicated consistently. And I think increasingly through all forms of electronic channels um, and to the point, if we can get um, our influencers taking that case and pushing it out into their communities, then you know we've hit the spot. Point two, committed leaders, both internally and externally. And I would ask, what's harder, internal or external? Um, I don't think I don't think one is harder than the other. They are different. Um, with internal leadership, you know, there I'm thinking of, you know, your president, your provost, the deans, the athletic director, uh, key faculty members. Um, you know, the the idea that those folks will invest their strategic focus around identifying what priorities there are, that they will commit resources to a a robust advancement program relative to potential, um, and that they will um, commit the time that's necessary to engage with prospective donors, whether it's like this or um, in face-to-face settings. Uh, I'm hearing, by the way, that a lot of faculty members prefer this. It's more efficient for them, so they prefer this. They've leaned in during the pandemic uh, in in new significant ways. Externally, you know, the time, time, talent, and treasure. That's you know, that's what we're looking for. And and hopefully, when I talk about external leadership, when when we recruit for the foundation board, for instance, we ask folks to think about the UW Foundation being one of their top three philanthropic priorities during the period that they're gonna be serving as board members. So, you know, asking them to prioritize this, to make this important and and, um, lean in with us uh, in that time, treasure and talent way. Which leads to point three, engaged stakeholders who are willing to invest. Yeah, and I want to give a shout out to um, Edgar um, Gonzalez over at Seattle U because he uses the word champions. And I think that's a great way to describe this third predictor. We want champions. Um, we want people that are going to stand up and sort of fight for that UW brand or that WSU brand or the Oregon State or the Illinois brand. Um, we That's that's what I mean by uh, by engaged stakeholders. Um, you know, the and these are people that need. Again, we need to diversify our donor community. We need to become more inclusive in our approach. Um, 
So we need these champions to feel welcome. They need to feel like they are valued and supported and that they belong. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that's the group that we've got to work through the, the, the ever true funnel type of, of, of model and, um, and identify which of the, um, those, that constituency we're going to be targeting for, for philanthropic support. You mentioned early the one or 2% of the donors who drive 98, 99% of the support. That's the, that's the 80-20 sales rule on steroids. It's what we see here at the University of Washington. I guess what I would ask Brent is, is that the right definition of success going forward? Or do we have to step back and look at our fundraising model in a more inclusive manner? Um, and yeah, and have I mean, metrics. you know how I feel about this. Uh, uh, everybody probably listening does, but I, I think it's another example where, uh, you know, it's frustrating that we even have to debate it because in any other sector, the answer, it would be both. I mean, who's in your backyard? Microsoft, they have an incredible, incredible enterprise business yep. and they have an incredible SMB business, right? They didn't say, you know what, we're only going to serve the top one to 2% of fortune 500 companies. And we're going to, you know, only do $10 million contracts. That's a big part of what they do, right. but they figured out a way to scale their work all the way down to the one person business that needs a suite of services to get up and running. And I think that's um, for whatever reason, we've been unable to allocate resources to let's call it the mid-market and then the SMB in the way that the commercial sector has, even though there are clear examples where from a lifetime value perspective, that is what gets the fills of the world to eventually become the top one to two percent, and so, you know, we're going to keep pushing that narrative as long as we can and proving it. Um, and it is the kind of thing. I mean, that is a you know presidential and board level discussion where we've just got to be able to make the case that it it doesn't need to be either or. It's got to be both and. Yeah. Um, and there's tremendous precedent from, I mean, wealth advisory. Right. You've got the absolutely ultra high net worth category. And you've got the Smith Barney broker getting people started with their first IRA and everything in between, but there's a personal touch along the way. Yep. Um, and it's that personal touch that oftentimes in, in fundraising, it doesn't start until somebody is named managing director. That's a missed opportunity. Yep. Agreed. Point four was the engine, the team, the culture, the resources, the systems and tools to enable the organization to capture its potential. Yeah, I think you've summarized it there well, and I think it's the, and the the add-on I would give is um, design the engine around kind of the north star uh, of what is what is how does success look, and so it ties right back to this last uh, quick dialogue we had. If 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 you're going to define success solely around the the one percent of the donors. Um, driving 99% of the support, well, you can design an advancement program um, to do that and probably spend far less money than we spend at UW on that and, and have a far more narrow focused effort. Um, you will have good results for some period of time. I think you'll fall off a cliff at some point. Um, 
But I think the end, you, you want to be mindful in designing the engines um, to align with that North Star of, of what success should look like. And I think it I think it needs to be that balanced approach that we're talking about. Um, the other piece that I would say I would just share in um, is I, I is is the the idea of um, uh, the right having the right people on the team in the right seats doing the right work. Um, years ago, from Stan and Connie, I learned the the sort of axiom around uh, you know the things we look for in hiring. We we want to hire people who with high integrity who are bright hardworking and caring. That's been our mantra for the, you know, the 40 years that I've been uh, doing this work. Um, and uh, a, a CEO from Dryer's Ice Cream said, said it this way. Um, he said, hire smart or manage hard. And I thought that was a great axiom. I just, I, I've hung on to that, you know, you, you make the right front-end decisions, Brent. And, and again, it's why I'm so grateful to have finished my career with this high-quality team at the University of Washington. Um, you know, a, a great team will take you to amazing places. Well, that's a good segue as we conclude here today, Dan. Um, share some reflections. Uh, you know, you're leaving the team in good hands. Tell me about the UW team. Uh, and, you know, you still are in the seat. And so are you hiring? Why should folks listening yeah. uh, pay a little extra attention to the UW jobs page? Yeah, I mean, we, we've got a search right now for a chief advancement officer for our College of Arts and Sciences. Our colleagues at Lindauer uh, and Associates are helping us with that search. Um, we, have, uh, we will soon be posting for a new chief advancement officer for our number one ranked school of nursing. Um, so we're looking forward to, uh, to launching that search. Yeah, we're we're hiring, and and like many of our peers, we've seen higher levels of attrition during COVID than we saw pre-COVID. Um, uh, but um, you know, I know another campaign is on the horizon for the University of Washington. Um, you know, we've got you know great leadership in place in Mary Gresh as a senior vice president, and Tamara coming in now as the VP for development. Our foundation board is going through a revisioning process to get itself ready to best serve the institution. So there's just a lot of momentum right now at the university. Um, and uh, just just today, the Seattle Times, I put up on LinkedIn a, a post about you know the 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 um, academic quality of the institution. A, a, again, another one of the the significant rankings, uh, number number two or number three public in the U.S. Um, so there's just a lot of momentum, a lot of good things that are happening. Uh, if you, if you care about, uh, if you care about a better world, a place like the University of Washington as an advancement professional is a, is a, 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 a good place to look at, uh, coming and making a difference and, and having an impact. I love it, Dan. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective. And I'm glad we were able to sneak this in. Um, in, in time uh, prior to your retirement. Uh, for folks who want to be in touch, I've already suggested LinkedIn. Any recommendations? Is that the best channel? Yeah, I put my personal Gmail account there, and I believe I, I stuck my cell phone uh, there too. But um, yeah, would love to stay connected. I'm in a, 
I'm going to wind down and, and not do a whole lot. Uh, I'm, I'm going to think about being a grandfather and a father and a father for the next six months. And um, then we'll see what happens after that. Well, I hope you enjoy that. And uh, sounds like off to a good start uh, with Addison's birthday today. Yeah. So I really look forward to being in touch, Dan. Thank you for sharing your perspective. And I would encourage everybody listening, reach out to Dan uh, and let's keep this uh, community uh, connection going. So with that, Brent Thanks, signing Brent. off. Yeah, you bet. Brent signing off with today's guest, Dan Peterson from the University of Washington. 